0: Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks.
1: Oh, wow. Hey, can I bring Anne?
0: Who? Anne. You know, she's, she's the girl I'm kind of hanging out with. I haven't met Anne. Yes, you have. Michael had met Anne. Conversations about collaboration, episode 66. Ann Dow Pham joins me. She is a VP of product and program management at Edmonds. We talk about her new book, Glue, how project leaders create cohesive, engaged, high-performing teams. Let's get it on. And live from Los Angeles, how is the city of the angels?
1: It's wonderful. We're starting summer and the weather is nice. We've got a little bit of June gloom, but I'm pretty excited to get started with Los Angeles in the summer. Great.
0: Well, I'm excited to chat with you. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about project leadership in the context of your book. I never heard that term before, but I'm curious about what you mean by it.
1: One of the things that I wanted to do in my book was make a distinction between um, what's a traditional project manager versus a project leader. And I guess Recently, I've started to see myself as somebody who sort of transcends the role of project manager and that a project leader can be any person on any particular team that takes on a leadership role and really um, takes ownership and responsibility for driving a project to completion That person doesn't necessarily need to be a project manager in title, could be a cross functional leader of some sort, but somebody who's actually stepped up to take that position and has the ability to kind of organize and lead the team. I think that to me is the main distinction. Uh, I feel like a lot of people who end up in leadership roles on projects just happen to be that way. In particular, if you're in an organization that doesn't have um, enough project managers or delivery managers to cover every project. And now that we have a lot of project-based work in companies, everybody essentially at some point in their career seems like they have the opportunity to lead a project. And so I wanted the book to be broadly applicable in that sense for people to be able to pick it up, even if they weren't a project manager in title, and be able to get something from it. And I think the principles are generally applicable no matter what your role is, as long as you're looking to really get a cohesive team together and drive a project to completion. Mm -hmm.
0: Elizabeth Heron was on my podcast to talk about her book, Managing Multiple Projects. And when I was reviewing it to do the prep for the pod, I was amazed at some of the statistics she had thrown out. Project-based work is something like 50 to 60% of all work. And according to, I think it was PMI, there's just this massive dearth of project managers. Um, so I, I would agree. It seems like some people are almost accidental project managers and they kind of back into the role without any formal training, much less a PMP certification.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, that's what's happened at my company as well. When I started, we had a much bigger project management organization. I think, and not a ton, but we had maybe 12 people or so. Um, and now we slimmed down quite a bit. And there are clearly more projects than project managers in the company. So somehow the work is getting done. And I guess the main point that I wanted to make in the book is you don't have to be a designated project manager entitled to be able to drive a project to completion. People do it every day They just end up in these roles because there is a void that needs to be filled. And um, as long as you're taking ownership and responsible for that delivery and and feeling like you have the ability to move your team in the right direction, you're a project
0: leader. I would imagine that it's harder to use your term, move a team in the right direction with so so many of us being remote and working in a hybrid fashion. Am I wrong on that?
1: Yes and no. I, I actually get this question a lot. So when I wrote the book, I actually wrote it during COVID. So I'd been working from home for over a year um, with a fully remote team. And when I wrote it, I didn't actually even really consider the principles around remote work. And so one of the feedback items I got from beta readers was, well, how do these principles apply? And my first response was, it's really about the same. <laughs> you just have different tools that you need to use, and you might need to be a little bit more prescriptive about making sure you're making the right personal connections. So, where in a, a, a office environment, you can just tap and stance on a person. Um, you have to be more intentional about, about making those connections. So you might have to reach out through Slack or whatever collaboration tool you have to have ad hoc discussions, or you might have to take five minutes at the top of a meeting to have a conversation. That's a little bit more personal so that you can make a connection before you sort of dig into the work. But generally speaking, There isn't a ton that I do differently in a remote working environment versus an in-person environment. I feel like the principles are all the same. It's just the mechanism you use to actually make the connections is a little bit different. Um, So you might have to prepare a little bit more so that you can do a collaboration on like a Word document instead of a whiteboard. But the way that you approach the problem and the way that you frame the problem and the type of interactions you have are are really, really similar from my perspective.
0: Hmm. Do you find that you're having a harder time building bridges with folks who may have joined your company after the pandemic and you've never actually met them?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is it is more difficult in the sense that um, you don't know, you don't see people. So it's hard to interact with somebody that you haven't intentionally set time to interact with, Um, So it's, and work is a little bit more siloed. So, you know, I interact with my project team very directly because I have things that I need to do with them. But somebody who's in a cross-functional team that I don't interact with on a day-to-day basis, it may be several months before I actually meet them. I think that's actually the biggest difference. But once we meet and we know that we need to do work together, all of the methods that I would employ to get to know that person and build a relationship are all the same. Um, I do have a funny anecdote. There was a person at my company recently when the office opened where um, I saw him in the office and I heard that he was attending orientation. I thought, wait a second, I know this person's name. And so I saw him in the office and I said, hey, how are you doing? Did you leave the company? I didn't even realize he had. And so um, he's like, yeah, I left about a year ago. And I was like, oh, I had no idea because we don't work together on a day-to-day basis, Um, but we had, you know, crossed paths before. And so when I saw him, you know, we had some, uh, we actually had a conversation to catch up and that's something that wouldn't have happened. I probably wouldn't even have realized that he left and came back um, at all, if we hadn't just reopened the office. So, those types of informal connections that I think are beneficial once you actually start having to work with a person um, are harder to come by unless you join sort of virtual happy hours or other types of mixers. So, I find it's harder to make personal connections before you actually have to work together. But once you do have to start working together, the way that you form those relationships and build those bonds and build trust and respect, I think, are all the
0: same. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to something that you sort of alluded to before, and to quote you from your book, project managers are an efficiency, not necessity. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, this is something that I feel like is somewhat a controversial statement to make if you self identify as a project manager. Um, what I mean by that is one thing that I realized at my company was when I started, it was viewed that project managers were more of a necessity, whereas we wanted to have scrum masters for every scrum team so that they were making sure that there was a formal person in that role designated with that title. And then over time, our company um, went through some transitions. We also went through some hardship like uh, many other companies out there right now and had downsized our project management team. But project-based work, as you quoted before, is still happening. So then who's leading those, who was leading those projects? And I realized we don't need formal project managers on every project. Um, in most cases, teams that are smaller in nature and have like a pretty direct focus tend to operate pretty well on their own. Somebody ends up stepping into up into that role um, to do the leadership pieces that need to happen in order to drive that forward. And when you really need a more formal person in a project leadership, project management role, or where you get the most bang for your buck is in projects that are are problem projects. So they're high visibility, high risk, or potentially um, cross multiple teams where there's you know the gaps in communication can be greater. That's when I feel like you end up um, needing a more specialized person to step in if you want to reduce the risk on a project. But at the end of the day, project managers are not the people who are hands on keyboard who are doing all of the work. Um, So if you need something to be done, it will probably eventually get done. If you have people who have the right skills to do the execution, if you want it to happen faster and with less risk, (laughs) then you probably want to add somebody who's overseeing the project in a more formal capacity. And that's why I I view project management as an efficiency rather than a necessity. It's like at the end of the day, if I weren't there, I think the project would still get done. But if you want it with um, more collaboration, less risk overall, more visibility and transparency and having somebody focused specifically on that, then by all means, add a, a formal project manager to it.
0: Yeah, I think that you hit on something important When it comes to the type of methodology, because when I spent most of the aughts doing large scale ERP projects using the waterfall method or phase gate, whatever you want to call it, there was always a PM. You could never do it without one. But I saw on one of the LinkedIn project management groups I'm a member of, and something tells me we're in a lot of the same groups. Someone asked the group via poll what percentage or who thinks that you need a proper PM on an agile based project, something using Scrum or whatever. And around, I think it was 88 or 90% of the people said that a PM wasn't necessary. That's yeah. keeping with, with what you're saying here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If, if you're in a smaller team, and um, they have a well-defined process. Scrum, in, in particular Kanban, um, you're not like trying to plan out things that have lots of dependencies. They're kind of flowing in as you go. Then generally speaking, you don't necessarily need a project manager to kind of organize the big thing. I will say like in aerospace where you know PMI was uh, created to manage very large projects of high risk that run over large spans of time where you need to do a lot more planning and it's not necessarily just the hands-on keyboard work that's happening in like an agile software development environment, then I can see the value, you can see more value in that particular role designated in that way. But the way that a lot of project-based work is happening right now, there are just many, many teams that operate pretty well Um, on their own. And then the role or the definition of that role really changes. And you want to be focusing more on things that are problems, you know, (laughs) making the team more efficient rather than viewing yourself as a necessity. I think that when you come in and you view yourself as an efficiency and you're always looking to figure out where can I add value to this team that may already already be operating pretty decently well, um, rather than sort of coming in with um, predefined strictures that you're planning on implementing with this team because you have a methodology you're trying to apply, but looking for the places where you can create efficiency or make that team operate better, you end up being much more effective with your time um, when you're approaching the problem that way.
0: Yeah. I think one of the major inefficiencies I've seen, and I'm guilty of this sometimes myself, is, is using different tools and how different people use different tools at different times for different reasons. Yes. And then getting them onto the same tools can be problematic because people tend to hate change.
1: Yes. And I'll actually, absolutely.
0: Give, I'll actually give myself or my most recent book um, a C plus as a project manager because I'd worked with just about everyone on the team before, in some cases, for more than 10 years. So I didn't want to be rude and say, okay, you have to use Basecamp or Asana or whatever. You can just you know do whatever. And a couple of times things slipped between the cracks because people were using different tools and it was just inefficient, but I forgot to do something because someone sent me an email and I sent that person a text or a message in Zoom or Slack or whatever. So I, I think that's one of the major areas for potential improvement. But again, going back to it, people hate change. So other than sort of bringing down the hammer and saying, no, you have to do this or you're fired, Do you have any advice for folks as a PM? Because so much of what you do, I would argue, is soft power, right? You don't want to have to play that card. I'm going to go to your boss or I'm going to fire you if you don't need to, especially when the labor market has got, what, 3% unemployment?
1: Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Um, I like to personalize the project, the process for each project that I'm working on or each project team. So in the book, I think I refer to a methodology or a process that's called working agreements, Um, When I started doing working agreements at Edmonds, I literally named it working agreements because that's what it is. And I had not heard of any other companies doing it. And as I was doing research for the book, one of my beta readers came back and said, hey, this is a thing. Like (laughs) Atlassian wrote a whole thing about this. And I was like, oh, that's something that I didn't realize. But it's basically a way to personalize the process for your team. And at its simplest level, you just get the team together and you say, how do you want to work together? And you go through things like what tools are we gonna to use to track our work and what is the workflow going to look like and when are we, how are we gonna do handoffs? And I find that it's a crowdsource approach to define the process. So you're not sort of uh dictating, you know, this is the tool that needs to be used. And then if the team decides on it collectively as a group and everybody's there and they've had their opinions heard, then your job becomes, well, I'm just, re- I'm just enforcing what you guys agreed to do. I'm not imposing something on you, but I'm trying to help you do the thing that you said you wanted to do to make this project operate efficiently. Um I generally will use the tools that the teams want to use. So if the tool tool is Basecamp, they really want to use Basecamp. It's like, fine, as long as there is a place where we're tracking our work and you all agree to use it, then I don't care what tool it is. Um, it's data, good data in, good data out, bad data in, bad data out. So if you can't get them to use it, then it becomes overhead for the project manager just to try to keep up with what's going on. And that's not effective. So the tools that actually enhance the process are the ones that you want to use. And the best tools for me are always the ones that the teams are willing to use. <laughs> so if you need to unify it, um, my advice is, yeah, try to get them to sort of hash it out and decide as a group, this is the thing that we're going to use. Everybody probably will agree that generally is a principle you want to track all the work and it would be helpful to have it in one place. So then it's just a matter of sort of moving them in the direction of choosing something that is unified. And then once they're there, then just enforcing it or helping them with that transition.
0: Yeah, Brian Elliott of the Slack's feature forum was on my pod for the second time a couple of weeks ago. And he talked a lot about from the book that he and the the folks at the Future Forum wrote about team level agreements, which I think is just a different moniker for working Working agreements. But but it is interesting. Um, I I would imagine that if you're a dedicated PM and using different tools with different teams and different projects, then yeah, sometimes these tools you can export and import or you can get kind of a high level overview. But I mean, if you're in a PMO, you don't want to hear that. Right? You'd want to hear what percentage of our projects are on track or over budget or blah, blah, blah. And if everyone in the organization is using a different tool, I mean, you're just adding friction.
1: Yeah, this is one of the challenges with um, larger PMOs at big organizations. I don't have a, the best solution for that. Um, and that's something that I actually struggle with. But philosophically speaking, I'm sort of uh, anti-status you know status reporting at that level. So uh, in every sort of team that I've Managed when I'm managing a project management team, I'm very much more focused on delivery and some of even the softer metrics that indicate whether or not a team is successful. So I talk about how I measure success based off of both delivery and team happiness. Mm -hmm. Morale isn't something that you can necessarily measure, but you know if you've executed a project and it's delivered, if it's successful, um, if the team is feeling good about it, you'll know. And if the team is feeling bad, then I would not count that as a success. And so um, I tend to stay away, at least in my own management of teams, of you know, sort of decoding a team to a status. And I like to have it be a little bit more conversational. So it's less of a burden for me to not have unified tool set across all the teams or unified process across the teams to have that type of reporting. It's a little bit softer in how um, I would reflect different statuses. Again, I don't lead like a gigantic project management organization in a big company. So different organizations have different needs. And I think that, you know, you have to really look at what the organization needs and decide what's best for that organization to get the things done that you need to get done. Um, But I like to be a little bit more personal about that process and worry less about standardization and worry more about whether or not the teams are healthy, happy, and delivering.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's probably a happy medium because um, researching my new one, I came across, you probably heard of it, Wrike. Mm-hmm. And Citrix bought them, I think, for about $2 billion, maybe a year ago, give or take. And they're doing really interesting work with regard to AI and machine learning. So in theory, they could look at thousands of anonymized projects across different sectors and say, hey, Anne, um your current project is fine, but... Here, there's a 26% chance that this one thing is going to blow up. And you look at the dependencies and the tasks and the status, and you go, what, what are you talking about? But because they have all this standardized data, um, I think that's really fascinating. But if everyone's using a different tool with different definitions, then that recommendation is not only meaningless, I would argue, but counterintuitive, because it's either significantly underestimating the risk of something happening or significantly overstating it, in which case you're going to ignore it when, in fact, there may be a you know, a doctor going, you really should get tested if it's, yeah, you were wrong before, you'll be wrong this time. Well, <laughs> not necessarily. So I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I, I guess to your point, if you're working in a small organization, then maybe the benefit of that is somewhat limited. But if it's a larger organization, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, it, it, it's not surprising to me that so many books are out there on project management and so many of them take a different tack because it is so multidimensional. Under yeah, normal circumstances, never mind in a pandemic, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we have somewhat of a happy medium. All of our teams at Admins where I work were we all use Jira. Um, but Jira has a very um, the ability to personalize the workflow for each different team. So all of the data at least is in there. Um but every process flow is different, the steps that each team decides to take in order to get projects released to production, whether they're Scrum or whether they're Kanban or something else, um, they have the ability to personalize those flows so it's kind of a happy medium in the sense that all the data is in one place, um, but it isn't standardized to the degree that it would be so easy to report on statuses. And so you do need a human element um, to report on that, which isn't perfect, but I also don't think it's a bad thing. Like if you get to the point where you're managing an organization and not talking to the people about how the projects are doing, and you're just sort of looking at colors, I think that that's unhealthy as well. So, you know, I think there's a happy medium and uh it I really depends on the organization and what you're trying to strive for.
0: It's funny that you mentioned colors. I can tell you that on projects in the past that were woefully past their deadline and over budget, I'd have something down as red. And then go, does it really need to be red? Can it be more of a-
1: know, Maybe a you know, yellow? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I'm going, well, no, because we're three weeks behind and all that, but we can't report this as red. I'm going, well, what do you want from me? I know. <laughs> you know, you go ahead and change the color, but that you're making it meaningless. So yeah, it's- Yeah. Good stuff. Um, I'll get you out here on this end. What book are you currently reading?
1: I'm currently reading a book called The Seven Forms of Respect by another Vietnamese American author named Julie Pham. We actually met after I launched my book and um, we realized we had a personal connection because she writes about leadership and she's first generation Vietnamese American. And um, it's just cool to meet somebody who is so similar (laughs) in your niche um, and what's cool about it is it's very similar to the book um, the five love languages in the sense that you know you realize that people have very personalized needs for how they um, they communicate and then how they perceive information and respect is something that is pretty paramount in a healthy work organization so if you can be a little bit more sensitive to the idea that people receive and perceive uh, respect in different ways, in the same way that they might uh, receive and perceive love in different ways, then you can tailor the way that you approach a person based off of that. So I think that the concept is pretty fascinating. And um, I'm not all the way through the book, and I don't have the seven forms fully memorized yet. But um, but I think the sentiment around it is a general and broad enough that it is humanly applicable to all projects. And um, I would recommend it.
0: Okay. Thanks so much, Anne. I really enjoyed it. and Congratulations on the book.
1: Thank you so much. Really nice to be here, Phil.
0: Thanks. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday, however, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.